0: One in 10 from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Weizar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward to solve the greatest challenge one in 10 of our children face, child abuse. Today's episode is the Family Focused Advocate. One barrier to improved outcomes for children is getting families to participate in and complete mental health treatments. We have the services available, but not enough families are taking advantage of them. How do we change that? I spoke to Dr. Libby Ralston from Project BEST, who is calling for a shift in the way we communicate and a focus on family advocacy. What are the value and belief barriers we must overcome? How can we meet caregivers where they are and really listen to what they need? And how can our team partners help make the case for treatment? Libby, you know, I think that when, sometimes for those of us who aren't clinicians, when we think about a child who's been traumatized um, or experienced trauma anyway, from childhood sexual abuse or other forms of abuse, we really think about their treatment often, you know, in terms of the child's experience. But, you know, one of the things that we're really learning about is the value of the caregivers' support and involvement in that. Can you just talk a little bit, you know, the term family engagement is, and is in a certain way, a little bit odd. You know, if you've never heard the term before, you might not even know really what that means. What, are, what do we now know about the importance of caregiver, you know, support and involvement in the treatment of their children when they've had this experience?
1: We often say to a caregiver, there's good news and bad news. The good news is how you manage this, your child is going to impact how well they're able to manage it. And that's also the bad news that we engage that caregiver, we engage that child so that the family can heal, the family and the caregiver's uh, contribution to the child's healing is really critical and not, not just something that we think now, it's something that we know based on research.
0: So when we think about the caregiver's involvement and support of the child and we think about the research that exists around its importance, do we know much about what the actual mechanism is that's important? I mean, is it better communication with the child? Is it, you know, the caregiver begins to deal with some of their own trauma that they may have? Or is it something else?
1: Well, what we have learned is that relationship is critical. And, and when you say in, improve communication with their child, that really is based on relationship also. We have learned through research also that relationship is critical to resilience and, of course, healing is resilience is very much a part of healing, so a, a positive relationship between the child and the caregiver is critical to that child's healing. When you say that the caregiver may have begun working on their own trauma history, if that trauma history is a barrier to their relationship with the child, then that's also certainly very critical, but the key component is relationship.
0: You know, I I wonder if you, you know, you've been in many of those conversations yourself as a clinician over the years. Do you find that when you talk to parents about their critical role in their child's healing, that they're receptive to that? Do you feel that they, you know, um, are glad to, to hear that? Or do you feel that they find it overwhelming to hear that. Well, I think I think the answer to
1: that again is relationship between the person giving them that information, the therapist or the family advocate or whoever is sharing that. That that it's critical that you have begun to develop a relationship with that per, that person, uh, so that you aren't just giving them that information uh, kind of cold but it's through the relationship that you have, that you've identified, that they are the, the expert about their own child, their involvement with their child is critical. You know, in the early days of mental health treatment, we didn't tend to see caregivers. We saw children in isolation. Those days hopefully are over now and that we are seeing the caregiver, we are developing a relationship with that caregiver, uh, we are engaging with that caregiver, as we begin to give them information about their role in the healing of their child,
0: is there any such thing as evidence-based trauma-focused care that doesn't involve caregiver engagement?
1: I can't imagine that there is. Um, a relationship is so critical um, in communication, in trust. You know, if if you are going to be uh, a change agent with a caregiver what we need to understand is that they truly are the change agent for their child we can't do anything to them we can guide them and shepherd them along a path where to strengthen their capacity to be that support for their for their own child Um, But I can't imagine, I'm not aware of any evidence-based intervention that doesn't really require a relationship to be successful.
0: You know, one of the things that I'm thinking about is I can completely understand how, you know, because of the time period that clinicians would have with a family, with a child and their caregiver, you can imagine developing um, this very vital um, relationship, really, and I 'm just wondering when you think about the role of family advocates in particular, who although they may be involved with the family throughout the life of uh, the case and even far beyond that, initially they may have a relatively short uh, period of time with uh, the caregiver and they and of course it's a moment of crisis. Can you talk a little bit about you know techniques that you have found to be helpful in being able to sort of establish that, that important relationship rapidly to really engage the caregiver um, in a way that's going to lead to, you know, a longer-term, better partnership on behalf of that child.
1: Well, I think there are some, some things that are critical to that. Uh, one of those things is to meet that caregiver where they are and to listen Uh, we're not gonna know who they are, where they are, uh, unless we really listen to them and to engage them in communication about what they believe to be their needs, what they believe their child needs, uh, what, what is most important to them at that moment and, and to begin at the moment that we meet them so that we don't just become teachers, we don't just give them information but we listen to them first we're respectful to them I, and I think you mentioned the, the family advocates, they, they have historically, through CACs uh, been seen as people who give support for the family and those families aren't going to be open to that support unless it's delivered with respect it's delivered with empathy some understanding of family has experienced, understanding that very often it's the worst thing that's happened uh, to a caregiver, to learn or to be concerned that their child has has been abused very often by somebody close to them. Uh, so to understand that they're in crisis, I, I would say that most every family that comes to a CAC is in crisis, uh, whether they ultimately learn that their child has been abused or not. Just the thought that their child has been mm-hmm. abused creates a crisis. And so we have to be sensitive to that. We have to be respectful. Uh, we have to listen. I I say to people, you know, your job when you meet a family is to give them hope, communicate hope to them, and to uh, work towards ensuring that, that you'll get to see them a second time. Because we know that the time may be short, but it's really critical if we're, what I've learned over the years is if you're going to be an advocate for a child, you have to be an advocate for that child's caregiver and family. Mm.
0: You know, one of the things that really struck me and, and made NCA really go down the path of looking at family engagement was really digging into our own outcome measurement system data and Um, and comparing that against other surveys that we had done with CAC directors. And and as you know, what we found in doing that was that CAC directors, you know, described the barriers for families in um, accepting and following through on mental health treatment, that those were really very practical, you know, in terms of childcare and um, transportation, other kinds of things, which is, you know, Certainly, those are barriers in many cases, but it was so fascinating that when we asked the caregivers themselves that very question, while a small percentage noted those kinds of things, uh, the number one reason they were not taking their children to therapy that they had been referred to was really because they fundamentally didn't believe that it was necessary. and. Uh, As we presented that information to CAC directors, it was very interesting because I think people, you know, it it was so um, revelatory, I guess. I think many CAC directors, because they've worked so hard to reduce those practical barriers, uh, which are essential to this, had not necessarily really given thought to the fact that fundamentally a person has to be convinced that some good benefit, you know, will come from this, and I'm just wondering about, you know, why you think it is that such a significant portion of parents, when you really look statistically, really are somewhat dubious about the value of that treatment for their child, and really don't believe it's necessary to heal.
1: I think there are a lot of factors, trees. I think one of those is just historically um, mental health. Treatment has not taken into consideration, as I said earlier, hasn't taken into consideration the, the role, the critical role of the caregiver. And if that particular caregiver has sought out treatment anywhere in the past, they may have felt left out. They may have felt disempowered in terms of helping their child. They may not have found it to be helpful. And so they, based on that, they may not seek treatment for that child. Um, I think another issue is that that there it continues to be unfortunately a stigma about mental health treatment I think another issue is that that treatment there 10 years ago if somebody went into treatment they might feel that they were going to be in treatment for months and months or years or or most of their life uh, We in the past uh, have said you know if a child is abused they they're, they're doomed and we know better now Hmm. but our clients don't necessarily know better our clients don't necessarily know that there's shorter term effective treatments that they and their child can participate in that can really uh over a short period of time build competency in terms of managing what's happened that then allows the child and the family to leave it behind and get on with their lives and we know that, but we don't always do a really good job communicating that. And, and as I said earlier, I think we have a responsibility to communicate hope mm, to mm, our families. Mm. And part of that, that hopefulness is based on uh, the evidence-based treatments that we have now that are effective to help kids heal and thrive.
0: You know, one of the things that we've been talking about internally, and I know on the Mental Health Implementation Committee and other places, is the way in which trauma screening and trauma assessments can also be used as family engagement tools. And so for those who might not be terribly familiar with those, can you just talk a little bit about how those screening and assessments can be useful in engaging caregivers?
1: Well I think that the first step in that is to communicate with the caregiver and to get some information from the caregiver about their opinion, their observations, their concerns about their child uh, because what we're really looking at is has this child experienced uh, something that may potentially uh, create trauma, a trauma response in that child. And so we need to gather that information from the From the caregiver because they are the expert about their child. And then we have that information and we can then share with the caregiver. We have, we have a questionnaire that helps us, uh, kind of structure the information that we're gathering from you. And then we can do a trauma assessment to see if there's been an impact of this traumatic experience on your child. And as we do that, we use the information that we have gathered from the caregiver about their opinions and their concerns. And it's very helpful to caregivers to say, what you told me about your child, clearly you know your child and understand your child and are very observant about your child because the information we've gathered from this, this instrument and this questionnaire confirms what you've told us. And that that helps allow that caregiver to feel like they're an expert and that they understand their child.
0: You know, to be, and because I'm thinking about with trauma assessments especially, because they're not simply given one time, it seems like it's also an opportunity for some ongoing conversation about what they're seeing in their child's behavior, whether it's improving or not improving, or you know, other symptoms that they might have, which I guess leads to another question I have for you. You know, I I sometimes wonder whether, you know, what, um, what makes many caregivers follow through on a mental health referral is actually concern about specific behavior that they're seeing in their child. And, I mean, do you find that, um, not that, you know, We want to somehow prioritize that over other symptoms that a child might have, which would not involve, you know, externalizing behaviors or acting out. But do you find that to be the case, or do you find that it's something else that really sort of motivates that beyond anything the family advocate or anything that the clinician might say? Do you see common um, factors in parents finally going, you know what, it's time, or even though that's inconvenient, I'm going to follow through with that.
1: I think that once a, a parent or a caregiver has some idea that that what happens at a CAC, whether it's with the victim advocate, whether it's the screening, the assessment, or the actual treatment, that once they have a sense that we're talking about the same kinds of things and that they are seeing... Uh, behaviors that are concerning to them it may be school behaviors it may be acting out at home behaviors it may be uh, behaviors that are are problematic in in different environments I think once they have a sense that they're and a hope that things mm. can change mm. that that is a motivator for them you know my experience is that that caregivers care about their kids
0: yes absolutely and
1: and they they show up. I mean, if a if a caregiver comes into a CAC, we say, "Wow, you you're a concerned parent. Here you are. This is a very hard thing to address, to deal with, and yet you've come here." Um, and that that's the first step. And once they begin to, we're able to communicate to them that there's help available. That what they want for their child is a possibility. And if they don't have that hope that we can communicate what's possible, uh, that they do get engaged. But it's our responsibility to give that information and to give it in a way that isn't a teaching but is a caring delivery, if that makes sense.
0: You know, it's such an interesting point you make because I do think that often we find ourselves in the position where because the information we're sharing may be new to the caregiver, it, it can come off, I'm sure, somewhat professorial, you know, let me educate you about this, which is a very different thing than really coming alongside someone and saying, you know, I, I need to listen to you because you know more about your child's behavior and what they're experiencing than anyone else. Um, that's, that's really a, a shift, you know, that we that we need to inculcate in ourselves and our own staffs. I think.
1: I I absolutely agree. It requires a shift in the way we communicate, mm. um, and it you know the the motivational interviewing provides us some some good um, interventions around that to and, and to say to a caregiver it would be it would make not make any sense for us to. Work with your child without involving you, without mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. you, what what your concerns are, what, what your hopes are, what your needs are. And, you know, we also, because we have good information and we do want to share it, sometimes, as you said, we, we become um, preachy to, mm-hmm. to our clients without without considering, you know, we want this child to heal from the trauma, but this mom is concerned about where her kids are going to sleep tonight. Right. We've we've got to listen and be tuned in to where our client is, not where we want them to be.
0: Well, and also even other things like, you know, the the mom who just wants their child to sleep through the night without waking up the house with night terrors or other kinds of things. I think so much about this is really helping listening in a way that helps us um, help someone solve a very what's a very practical problem for them in a lot of ways. you know it's having a very uh, concrete impact on their family, you know, certainly not a theoretical one. Um, so it's interesting to think about that. The other thing that I'm wondering is, you know, we're in, involved now in this family engagement um, training project which we're so delighted to be partnered with. Um you know the University of oklahoma and and others on and i'm I'm wondering but for and that's going to be kind of a learning laboratory for us about uh training victim advocates and family advocates around this, but I'm thinking for all those c a c directors who might be listening who are thinking you know I didn't have time to apply to get be a part of that project or um, I don't, uh, you know, I, um, I can't send my person off to training right this very minute or something like that. What are some steps people can take even without, you know, what are what are the next five actions, I guess I would say, that a CAC director should take to figure out, first of all, whether or not they have a family engagement problem, and secondly, to really try to turn that around? Well, I think
1: the, the, the data tells us if if we have a family engagement problem, because the family engagement is really about families coming to treatment, participating in treatment, and completing treatment, and if that isn't happening, um, then we have a family engagement issue. Clearly, we have wonderful, wonderful evidence-based treatments now uh, for kids and families who've experienced trauma, but they don't work unless they are delivered to that child and family. And so family engagement is, is critical to that out, outcome. I think that uh, one of the things that I'm real aware of is that, that family engagement is... We, we talk a, a lot about being trauma-informed um, and what that means in terms of the structure and the functioning and the communication at a CAC. We need to be thinking about that also around family engagement, that everybody who works at the CAC, from the person who does the intakes to the, first, the person who manages the, the waiting room, that we change our communication so that it's, it's family-focused. It's not focused on the services we delivered. It's focused on the families that we serve and then what is it that they need, what is critical to them, that very first time they come through the door, what will make a difference as they leave, what, what can we help make different as they leave so that they come back another time, uh, because that's, that's our job. Having access to treatment, NCA has done a wonderful job expanding access to evidence-based treatment, but if we don't, when they come through the door, if we don't engage them, and get them to come back a second time and then a third time and to participate in treatment, that access um, doesn't
0: count really. Right, it's not real or meaningful in many ways. I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, you're a CEC director and let's say of a, of a fairly small CEC, and, you know, you're doing this sort of administrative supervision of if you happen to have clinical staff of them but you're certainly doing any supervision of your family advocates how might supervision be a support for you know finding out what the status of family engagement is in your center but also in terms of supporting i'm just imagining i'm thinking about even supervision we do here you know how would the questions that i'm asking staff how would they differ if i were really trying to improve family engagement
1: I think one of the, the first questions again is about communication and how do you how do you initially approach uh, a family and to ask uh, staff how do you how do you not communicate that you don't have a lot of time or that you're stressed or that uh, how do you how do you manage that so that you don't communicate that to the family and that you're really uh, you're. Really question is, what, what can we do to be helpful to you today? What What is your main need? Help me understand uh, your greatest concern today so that we can talk about what might be helpful to you. To, to use that kind of approach and communication that is a part of motivational interviewing, asking permission to give information, inviting information from the family, and, and doing it from the perspective that you're not the expert, that they're the expert, and you need them to inform you, you need them to educate you about their child and about their family, and, and to pick out, as you said, is, is the most important issue for you, mom, that your child doesn't sleep through the night is the most important issue for you that that your child um, can't go certain places because of their behavior. What what would be the most helpful thing that we could uh work on today to help you with? Uh you know, we have a we have a pretty fast moving uh process at CACs and I think one of the things we have to do in terms of engaging families Is to slow that down and to keep the focus on who they are and what they need, uh, from their perspective. What are their strengths? Uh, what are their concerns? Those are the kinds of questions that I would want to know from a family advocate. How do you, what do you say initially? What do you do when you're stressed? Uh, how do you keep from communicating that to the family? How, what do you say that can communicate hope? to
0: this family. In some ways, what we're communicating with appropriate boundaries, of course, is caring. You know, it's our own um, compassion and humanity, I think. One of the things that I thought a lot of as I was a CAC director myself was, you know, when when families come into the Children's Advocacy Center, as you say, they're you know, they're so in crisis. For many caregivers, it's the worst moment of their life, you know, fearing that their child has been sexually abused. In many cases, they're about to have that fear validated. And, you know, I think that when I talked with families, you know, some months later, some who might be a part of support groups or other kinds of things, they could often not remember much about that day in terms of what someone told them, what particular advice they were given or interaction but they did really remember people's kindness, you know. They really did remember if they felt that they were treated with care and concern. And I wonder if we just sometimes forget that while we're, you know, busily working cases that we're still trying to convey that deep, you know, care and kindness for them and their family, and and walking with them through a, what is going to be a very difficult period.
1: And being able to acknowledge that, and that's what will bring them back. It isn't that we gave them great advice that necessarily brings them back. Uh, it's that caring and compassion that then opens them to hearing uh, other things that we might have to offer, I believe
0: it's it's kind of a relief, honestly, that some of that, I mean, it's hard to do in practice, but there's a certain simplicity to it as well, you know, that it's not that you're doing some special supersonic gyrations, you know, to get uh, families to, to follow through. A lot of it is really just paying, you know, caring attention to what they're needing and really being consistent in your follow-up about those things that they're prioritizing. You know, when you think about this, you know, this has this You know what we're doing on a micro level with individual families and then there's the piece of it that's what happens more at a macro level and I'm just wondering in terms of whether it's sort of state policy or whether it's um, federal rules and regulations or whether it's the way we pay for services are there some public policy implications to any of this that we should be paying attention to
1: You know that's a that's a really really good question that I haven't that I haven't thought a lot about, um, and my my answer is I'm sure there are.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about it either till I asked you, so I understand. I'll, I'll ponder that I'm as sure, well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm sure there are, and I think you know I think there are some. Some structural things, some process things mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. we need to look at, even just within individual CACs and the and the MDT. I mean, one of the things that I'm that I am convinced of in terms of uh, having been a mental health provider is that if the MDT uh, was educated and bought into um, the concept of family engagement and prioritize that, whatever their um, discipline is. Can you imagine how powerful it would be for families to hear mm. that kind of message mm. that you deserve treatment, you deserve to heal, you deserve, uh, as opposed to you have to? Mm. Um, I just think that that, that would make a, a tremendous difference, that everybody's kind of talking off of the same sheet and the belief. And, you know, when you were talking about barriers to families engaging and uh, you were talking about the families telling us that it's really about beliefs and values uh, as opposed to concrete, tangible things, Uh, when we think about the concrete, tangible things, we have tremendous resources across our MDTs that can can. Bring to the table resources that can help overcome some of those tangible barriers. But we need all of us to work on overcoming those value and belief barriers. Uh, and we can have strong beliefs that we can communicate to a family about what they deserve and, and how healing and thriving can happen. If we had our whole MDT educated and on that same page that would be very powerful
0: you know i feel like this is you know we're just at the start of our work in this space and i'm just so grateful for you know your service on our mental health implementation committee that helped turn us to this and in conversations we've had and i look forward to you know reporting back, you know, what we're doing on this and what a difference it's making. I just really appreciate you speaking with us today and look forward to continued success in this area.
1: Well, I thank you for the question about policy, uh, and I will think on that.
0: (laughs) Indeed, we both will. All right, well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to One in Ten, We hope you'll tune in for our next episode when we'll talk to Professor Joan Meyer from George Washington University Law School about custody court's failure to protect children when mothers allege the father is abusive. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.